0: Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repenjek, your host at National Parks
1: Traveler. A new name for New River Gorge National River, Mother Nature's Wrath on Yosemite National Park, and a surprising First Amendment ruling that appears to open national parks to commercial filmmakers without the need of a permit. Those were among the stories we brought you last week on The Traveler. We also reached out to some national park concessionaires regarding their plans for dealing with COVID this year and let you know that the Appalachian Trail Conservancy is discouraging thru-hikers this year on the iconic footpath. Those and other stories about national parks and protected areas can be found at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, we have some exciting news about a new national park, The country's largest tribal national park has been authorized and now is in the early stages of development. The Iowa Tribal National Park will sit on 564 acres along the Missouri River on the border of Nebraska and Kansas. The traveler's Lynn Riddick spoke with a tribe member who was on the front lines in the development of the park. He shared his thoughts about the park, how it will help the Iowa Tribe of Kansas and Nebraska, and the history it will honor.
0: Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to PotreroGroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center. All set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. We all aspire to leave a legacy of good, right? One way or the other, our parks and public lands are all of our legacies. Join wild tributes for the parks community with apparel that pays tribute to where legacy roams. Together, we can, and will, make a difference for the parks. Join us at WildTribute.com.
2: The governing body establishing the Iowa Tribal National Park is not the National Park Service. It's the Iowa Tribe of Kansas and Nebraska. And there are big plans in the works, with the goal of honoring the rich tribal history of the Iowa tribe. Lance Foster is vice chairman of the Iowa Tribe of Kansas and Nebraska, and he also serves as tribal historic preservation officer. He's joining me from tribal headquarters in White Cloud, Kansas. Hi, Lance. Welcome to The Traveler.
0: Hi,
3: Lynn. Thank you. That means, I'm an Iowa, I'm Bear Clan, and my name is, he finds it. It's related to the book Bear Clan. It's it's a name that relates to our traditional story of the bears coming upon this earth and, and finding what they're looking for.
2: Well, I want to talk a little bit more about the language um, a little further into the podcast. But first, I wanted to point out that sometimes the nation is referred to as Iowa and sometimes Iowa. So what's the distinction and is there a preference?
3: No, there's no preference because we're used, uh, we use both Iowa and Iowa, Uh, you'll hear both. Mainly it has to do with the historical artifact of the dialects of the English speakers that came into our area. People that say things like Missouri versus Missouri.
2: So interchangeable is fine? Sure. Okay. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about the history of the Iowa tribe and how populous and widespread the tribe was initially?
3: The Iowa people have always been centered in the place that was named after us, the state of Iowa. Most recent indications that jive with our traditions is that we were always there. Archaeological evidence shows kind of an emergence from the various bands that were there in the late woodland period. Two or three thousand years ago uh, about a thousand years ago we took on some of the mississippian traits like cahokia did but we're not affiliated with cahokia and that culture was known as oneota so for about a thousand years we uh, were part of a larger group that also included the ho-chunk the uh, Oto, missouri and some of the others. We were part of a great nation at that time. And so our our height of our numbers probably was somewhere between 1200 to 1600, uh, when we, like I said, were centered in Iowa and parts of nine surrounding states. But uh, the combination of epidemics, tribal movements, especially from the mid 1600s onwards, began a decline in our numbers. At one time, we were considered second in numbers to the various uh, Ocheti Shakoli, the um, Dakota Lakota people, at least in the Midwest.
2: Yeah, I want to have you take us back to that point in time, you know, during the 19th century and what the Iowa people endured, like you mentioned, in terms of diseases and hostile white settlers and other tribes and uh, a number of treaties that did not favor tribal people and hence caused a steady loss of tribal land and all those things took their toll. So, so paint us a picture of that point in time.
3: Well, the, um, the settlement of the Eastern seaboard pushed a lot of tribes west and there was a lot of collisions as the lands already were occupied. There was no land here that was not Native American at one point. So as those tribes kind of had a domino movement to the West, one after the other pushed those other ones before us, sort of like a, a, a bulldozer. And so we kind of piled up. And at the time when Lewis and Clark came through in 1804 with the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, And that was kind of the American um, kind of taking on French colonial territories here. And what happened then was kind of an adjudication of which territory was which tribes. The um, tribes, of course, had a lot of conflict at that time because we were all getting piled up and smashed together. And so the Dakota uh, were kind of getting pushed from the the north and uh, we got pushed south we encountered the sac and fox kind of being pushed from the from the east and so that's that was the time when the first treaties started getting made and unfortunately we picked the wrong side during the war of 1812 we picked the british because we knew the americans wanted our land and we lost that one and so our first treaty was 1815 but over that period of that 1800s we one treaty after another our territory was shrunk more and more as our numbers declined more and more and in fact, by the end of the 1800s, there was a period where we were about 150 people. Uh, indications we started somewhere at white contact around six to 7,000.
2: Well, Well, describe the modern day Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska, you know, the population now, resources, what your economy is based on.
3: Our reservation here, although we have a um, ancestral site here, called the Leary Site National Historic Landmark from uh, occupied mostly from 1200 to 1400 AD. It was just a corner of our far-flung territories. And it was part of what we were assigned during Indian removal in the 1830s. In 1836, we were moved here as part of the Platte Purchase Treaty. And after the allotment period, there's just so much to know, as, as you know about Indian history, but the allotment period uh, from the 1880s and 1890s our land was steadily carved up and taken away from us until, by the 1930s, over 90 percent of our land had been lost. We had hardly anything left, even on our own reservation. Steadily, we began to try to recover. The Indian Reorganization Act helped to establish the current governing body, the Executive Committee, and with the help of the casino money, uh, we began to try to buy some of our land back, bit by bit. But we still only about own of only about maybe one third of our reservation. Our current um, economy is based only on this fairly small rural casino, which was isolated during the floods 2019 for, I guess it was March to October, nobody could really get to us. And so with the pandemic in 2020, it's been pretty hard going, but this kind of challenge pushed us into our commitment to regenerative agriculture with the kind of new ways of um, Diversifying from the corn-soybean cycle to our own tribal herd, which we've had actually some some since the 1980s, and we've added to that the Iowa Bee Farm uh, with our own tribal honey. Um, we started our hemp operation this last um, year, and so we're going in new, new ways to try to heal our land because the conventional industrial agriculture was really uh, starting to make it so it didn't look like our soil would last another 30 to 40 years.
2: You mentioned COVID. How how are you hanging in there then with COVID?
3: Well, just like there's a disadvantage in being, it's really interesting because we're in the middle of the country, right? But at the same time, we're pretty rural and we're probably about two hours from Omaha and two hours from Kansas City. And so we're out in the middle of nowhere in a way, the way a lot of people think, but that's kind of been to our advantage too, because the executive committee has really taken COVID seriously from the get go. And so we always always uh, required masks, we required social distancing, we required all that. Of course, that's not always very popular because it's a fairly conservative area that people don't always believe what is said about it. But that's also saved us from um, a lot of impact. And we're just kind of beginning to feel some of the ripples now. Um, we have had some challenges, mainly economically, and we had like three months there. Again, our main job source, our um, casino, was shut down because of COVID.
2: Tell us what your personal Iowa heritage is.
3: My um, Iowa heritage uh, comes from through my father, and um, we're a patrilineal tribe. And what's interesting about our tribe, too, is because 90% of our land had been lost by the 1930s, Our tribe's population had to scatter. World War II, scattered people to the shipyards. That's what happened to my grandparents. Um, They went to California. I was actually born in California. My dad moved to Montana. I was raised up there around a lot of the Northern Plains tribes up there, like the Cheyenne Blackfeet. But um, my connection through my grandmother, she taught me some words, but the language had been kind of beaten out of us by boarding schools so that there were very few people that spoke much or any of it up north. Our branch down, our uh, sister tribe down south in Oklahoma, they kept kept it a lot longer than we did.
2: You are in White Cloud, Kansas, and it is the seat of government for the Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska. Tell us about the man named White Cloud.
3: Well, there were several uh, White Clouds. Um, it's interesting, I would get emails from people saying, hey, I think I'm related to White Cloud. Well, there were White Clouds in many tribes. There was White Cloud in the Jewish people. Anyway, so first of all, realize there are a lot of White Clouds. (laughs) It's like running bear, right? But uh, the first White Cloud uh, note was the one who signed the treaty in 1815, making peace with the United States. There's a series of documentaries about our people called Lost Nation that talks about the, uh, the White Cloud story. He had a son named White Cloud as well. And then the son who was the chief when we were moved over here in 1836-37, his son too, he had several sons, also their last names became White Cloud. So we have had a series of White Clouds. James White Cloud was the last commonly recognized chief here on our reservation with um, authority in, in that kind of way. The whole idea of chief has changed also in contact with the United States because originally every clan had four chiefs. And so there was a large council of chiefs from different clans. And and there was a, the bears kind of ruled half of the year and the buffalo the other half. And each one had associated clans as part of that. But the United States only wanted to deal with one person at a time. So they, they picked the one chief who kind of was on the United States side during the uh, War of 1812.
2: I'm Lynn Riddick, and after this short break, Lance Foster from the Iowa Tribe of Kansas and Nebraska will tell us about the process of turning tribal land into a national park.
0: Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at BRPFoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org.
2: i'm back with lance foster from the iowa tribe of kansas and nebraska let's talk about the development of the tribal national park how did this come about
3: well as as i said before we had lost most of our land to non-tribal members through the allotment process and um, some of that land slowly became part of our responsibility the first part was the leary site national historic landmark which was declared a national landmark. I think it was in 1965. And it was that ancestral village with a burial hill above it. That that burial hill actually kind of goes back to the Hopewell period, Kansas City Hopewell period, even earlier than that. So that we had, and I have been tasked many times as TIPO to THPO to...
2: And that's the Tribal true. Historic Preservation Officer.
3: Correct. So there, every time there's construction, I have to be out there uh, to make sure no burials are disturbed and try to make sure that as little is disturbed of the place as possible. But it's had the impact of agriculture for 100 years and and people collecting from all parts of the country. So it's, it's a up, uphill battle to try to preserve that place. So we had that since then. Then in 2018, the Nature Conservancy has a part of our reservation or had it was called the Rula Bluffs Preserve, and they wanted to donate it to the tribe because they were too far away. It was stretching their resources, and they wanted to return some of that land to the tribe. So they returned the first tract in 2018 and the second tract in 2020, and that to- that total was 444 acres. The Elyria site of which the tribe owned about 120 acres because it's not totally tribal-owned. So here we have these two places, one cultural and one... Um, natural now the rule of blessed preserve was declared a biologically unique landscape by the state of nebraska having several threatened species of animals and plants Uh, and and so here we are with this responsibility but again like most people have sometimes an unfunded mandate you know so we're trying to figure out how do we get people locally who are used to doing cutting and doing kind of what people want to do in rural areas. How do you get people to subscribe to that idea of preservation? And I looked around on the, on the web and I saw that Red Cliff uh, Ojibwe had uh, Frog Bay Tribal National Park. And I thought that's what we need to do. We need to f- make this uh, with a label that people understand as a place of, of perpetuation, preservation, conservation for our future generations and for those species there. So that's how that kind of happened. And I was lucky enough because um, they I was supported in that by the rest of the executive council.
2: You mentioned the Nature Conservancy and the donation of land. Is that the Nature Conservancy of Nebraska?
3: Yes, it is. Um, fine folks up there, they, uh, they basically were donated the land to them by uh, Ray Schuenberg, who had bought it in the late 40s, as kind of a Henry David Thoreau Walden Pond, kind of a retreat. He wanted to live on the land and that kind of thing. But he eventually, you know, got older. He's one of the fathers of prairie restoration. Uh, and he ended up working at the Morton Arboretum up there uh, in Illinois. So he donated to the Nature Conservancy, but he had uh, conservation easements on it that had to be managed for conservation. You couldn't do hunting, you couldn't log and that kind of thing on it. So Uh, We've inherited that responsibility, and that was part of the agreement we had with them.
2: So your idea of the total acreage of the National Park?
3: Well, so far what we have as the total acreage is 564 acres as it was established in 2020. We are looking right now, there's a piece of tribal property that is right next to one of that, uh, the boundaries there that is actually ancestral to my family and has a pond and and some things on it that might be a good visitors kind of location since it's going to be limited as to whatever kind of development could go in the rest of the park because of that those restrictions we're going to try to have some footpaths and trails and things like that but it's not going to be where you can drive through and and do that kind of thing because it's not it's not allowed in the conservation easement so we're trying to find ways help people enjoy it. That's one part. And then we have two other parts that we're looking at. We're going through the legislative process in um, Kansas to acquire a um, one of our historic missions. It was built in the 1840s. It was part of our original tribal reservation to tell our part of their story there. And then there's another piece in Rulo, Nebraska, about four miles away, where it will tell the story of Lewis and Clark's uh, trail it will talk about the, what is called the Nemaha Half-Breed Tract, which was ancestral to us too. Some of our families were French Indian children of French trappers and Indian mothers. And that was established in 1830 and was terminated in 1860. So it's a very complex French Indian uh, kind of uh, area. And then finally, you know you know a lot of people who say, oh, I'm part of Indian. I want to know more about that. Well, that's part of what Rulo is going to do that um, we're calling it the great Neemaha trading post will help people kind of connect to that, that Indian identity, allow them are lost through adoption or, or through family. Um, just kind of uh, at one point, of course, it was very dangerous to be Indian.
2: Tell me exactly where the park is going to be situated. You know, what's the scenery like there?
3: It's, it is a, uh... On the bluffs right above the um, Missouri River, right across the river are the, um, called Lust Bluffs National Wildlife Refuge. Um, at one point it was called Squaw Creek National Wildlife Refuge, but that name was changed because um, squaw is, is a pejorative, it, it's um, negative toward women. And, um, and so it was able to be changed. So it's a very complex landscape between the floodplains And these bluff forests, um, mostly oak hickory, but there's also orchids and um, ovenbird and uh, all kinds of snakes and reptiles and things that you don't find this far west. It's kind of like the furthest western little spot where the Appalachian and um, Ozark kind of plateau communities can exist here.
2: Now, you mentioned Lewis and Clark, and I know that the Corps of Discovery passed through that area on their way west. What do you know about what happened there with them?
3: In 1804, they moved up the river. They camped a few places, but they, uh, there's one incident where one man had fallen asleep on duty, and so they camped at the mouth of the Nemaha River. And the Nemaha is one of the boundaries of our reservation, the Big Nemaha. So in the camp there, I think it was Clark, went up the river for about three miles and then to a the mouth of a small creek. And he went up on top of a mound, uh, a hill there, and looked out and he said that this country had been uh, thickly inhabited at one time. And there were mounds and there were um, signs of uh, artifacts and things like that scattered all over. And that's that was his visiting, I think it was July 13th, 1804 the uh, Leary uh, Site National Historic Landmark. So he actually visited there.
2: Now you mentioned the trading post, the mission, what things are important to you in the development of the Tribal National Park and telling the story of the Iowa tribe?
3: Well, this is the interesting thing for me too. You know, I, I was raised in Montana. I first started coming back in my 20s. I'm 60 now. And my grandparents. I brought them back the first time. Well, the last time they would ever come here it was my first time, and uh, I came from a land of glacier Yellowstone places like that, and uh, I recognized the river, the Missouri River, although it's a little bit different river down here than it is up in Montana, and I just saw the beauty of the trees here and the beauty of the birds, and I, I guess I felt. I felt sad that so much had been taken away, that so much had been tamed compared to what I was used to. And then getting to know people to see how we had to survive. We had to transform ourselves to survive. And so much had been lost, so much of our language, so much of our traditions and stuff that I thought, you know, as one of my Cheyenne uncles, Herman Bear comes out, told me, if it was ever out there, it still is out there. And that's where you need to find it. That's the importance of preserving whatever pieces of land that still have that original um, what we call moatadani that um, the original land that the way the creator made it that still has that there and these are just little tiny pieces like 0.001 percent of what was there but it's all we have so that's why we have to protect it and help our people kind of find themselves and reconnect themselves through the land and other people who feel that kind of connection there have that chance too?
2: How are things different in tribal national parks and what you want to achieve there compared with the national parks that we are most familiar with?
3: Well, national parks, which I've always loved, national parks are usually the crown jewels of the, of the nation, right? Uh They are um, usually tens of thousands, millions of acres big. They're like the, the, They were threatened at one time by development, but they were saved by concerted effort. And there are these expanses of places that are irreplaceable. But tribal national parks, we don't have millions of acres. We don't have tens of thousands. We don't even have the best parts of what we had at one time. Those were all taken from us. So we have to take care of what we do have. We are tribes, but we are also nations. And that's what we call a tribal national park. Uh, in our treaties, we're known as the Iowa Nation. And so the thing that makes it different is on the one hand, if you try to do a national park for the United States today, think how tough that would be. You have to get Congress and all those other folks to agree on it and that would be almost impossible. In fact, the cases I've seen, it almost became impossible for the ones we do have. But the good thing about our little tiny places as tribes, as long as the tribes can agree on it, you know, we have that sovereignty of sovereign nations within our own boundaries to do that.
2: What members of the tribe's governing bodies will be involved and responsible for the development of the park?
3: Well, that is up for them to decide. You know The thing is is that we, again, we don't have a big casino. we don't have a big bank role. We don't have taxes on our own people. So uh, it's gonna have to be a pretty much a volunteer effort at this point. Um, We've got about a five year period that we have as a target to open officially in 2025. In the meantime, I have to get all whatever personnel we can get lined up, the footpaths, the trails figured out, the uh, hub uh, spot um, developed to the point where people can enjoy it and um, interpretive signs at the different places Because, you know, it is, um, it's kind of our last, our last hope. But the big difference with us, we don't have an alternative. This is a thousand years from now. We were here 1200 AD. We're going to be here a thousand years from now. Unlike other people who can sell and change and move to another country and move away. This is it for us. We'll be here a thousand years from now, or we'll be in the ground a thousand years from now.
2: Yeah, I was curious to know about the timetable before your doors are open for business, so to speak, and you mentioned the five-year perhaps being open by 2025. Do you have any historical structures there, and will they be incorporated in part of the park? You mentioned the mission in Kansas. What else is there that could be part of this?
3: Well, one of the places that's very interesting is we have a place called the Oak Grove Schoolhouse, And um, that is where AIM members stayed during some of their being pursued by the federal authorities. And the great thing about it is that we're within three jurisdictions, uh, state of Kansas and Nebraska, and right across the river is the state of Missouri. So there was a period of about a week, I think, where they stayed there, not knowing which way they should go. That's an interesting old uh, schoolhouse from the 1910s. We have um, the Iowa Community Building, uh, built uh, by tribal members from native limestone in the 1930s as part of the WPA uh, administration, you know, efforts that they had there. Um, we have um, the trading post up there. That's uh, from 1883. We've got Chief James Whitecloud's house. It's a reconstruction, so it's not the original one, but it's on the same site, about the same um, kind of appearance, where they can learn about the White Cloud family and uh, we also just uh, have a little house now in White Cloud, the town itself. There's going to be an Airbnb and a place for people to stay. And there'll be a White Cloud room there, too. So there are buildings around, but we have to try to shepherd those as best we can.
2: Are those structures open to the public right now, not counting COVID?
3: No, um, the, no none of them. And all this will be interesting, Lynn, because... We're gonna to have to walk that tightrope. As you know, the larger national, United States national parks are often loved to death. People love them, but they're just so heavily used. So there will always be a permitting process here to make sure that it's not overused. And that five year program will be phased about which can be visited at what point. We always wanna make it really kind of a, a rare experience for people to be able to enjoy it here so that they can have that kind of sense of peace that's hard to get to anymore.
2: Now, the conservation of language is so important to the preservation of a culture. And um, is it correct that no native speakers remain among the Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska?
3: Well, we have speakers. We don't have any The last fully fluent elders who spoke it from childhood completely and fluently. And by that, I mean could carry on a dialogue with each other conversation for days on end and not have to break into English. The last of those people died in the 90s. Today, we probably have a few dozen people who can speak some parts, uh, some phrases, some songs, some um, prayers, things like that. Um, Some basic things like uh, see you later, things like that. But uh, the problem is we've been scattered all over. We don't have central schools anymore where people can interact with each other. And language is sleeping now. It's not dead, it's sleeping. But uh, people have to decide whether they want to make it a priority. I don't know not a lot of people do. It's, It's sometimes work.
2: Do you have any thoughts on what kind of programs regarding the preservation of the language might be part of the park experience?
3: Well, the language is going to be integral to every part of the park experience. The language is what carries culture and it was shaped, it shapes your thinking about the land. And so each of these units will have its name in Iowa. Each of them, the signs will be interpreted in Iowa. My job right now, uh, as far as that part of it goes is mainly language awareness, language awareness to make sure that it doesn't die But it'll take a younger generation to see if it really wants to work to bring it back and how far it does want to bring it back.
2: Lance, I know you offer tutorials on learning the language on the Iowa Tribe website as well as on YouTube. So how did you learn the language?
3: My grandmother gave me some basics when I was a little kid growing up. And then in the 1980s, I started visiting with some of the elders and using some of the tapes they had produced and then going down to Oklahoma to check to make sure that my pronunciation was right and everything. Art Lightfoot, some of those guys helped me with that. And so that's basically how I did it. I had to bring it back sort of like the Wampanoag did with their sleeping language, a combination of, of people that still had some of the pronunciation left, people that had um, some of the works in the biblical passages, people that had, um, we have some of the um, stories that were collected by Gordon Marsh, um, traditional stories. So it's been that. And I was kind of worried, like, uh, you know, if my pronunciation was, was sufficient. And I was glad to be able to, in the 1990s, like I say, several of the elders said, you know, you speak Iowa better than the other ones up there. So, and I don't know who they were talking about, but I guess they would say, hey, what's the word for, um, for uh, acorn? And I said, "Buje," and they'd say, oh yeah, yeah. And um, they liked it enough. They said, hey, by the way, I want to teach you my favorite dumb phrase. And I said, what's that? And they said, hinaka And they, I said, oh, who's that woman over there? <laughs>
2: <laughs> so who do you find um, is the most interested in, in learning the language? Do you have kids? Do you have other younger people in the reservation that come to you, you know, or who tap into your tutorials on YouTube just to learn more because they have a thirst to learn about the language?
3: I think there's a lot of interest for like our membership is over 4,000 now. So we're scattered across the United States and even across the world. But people can't live here. They don't live here because their, their jobs and their careers and their families are based elsewhere. So a lot of the interest comes from elsewhere. Here we have maybe two or 300 people who live on and around the reservation. And the younger kids are very interested. We've had through the Boys and Girls Club, uh, some of the tutors who got really involved with trying to get the kids, and the kids ran away with it. They they really got into it. Unfortunately, the parents weren't that excited by some of it and didn't they didn't have the support. And so that's changed too. So. Is always a struggle. Language is always a struggle.
2: What about tribal music and ceremonies? How will they be incorporated into the park setting?
3: We have our Baklaje Fallen Campment, or Iowa Powwow uh, for short, is held the third weekend of every September. And that's usually when our drums and our singers and stuff are most active. Sometimes we will have other events, whether they're feasts or funerals, things like that. Those are more private. Those aren't generally for, uh, but you can certainly come to the powwow anytime you want, Lynn. I mean, you're welcome.
2: Okay, Uh, thank you.
3: (laughs) And most of the time, there are some prayers and stuff that people sing on their own. The Native American church down in um, Oklahoma is very active. It is something that is, you know, we try, to, we try to do as much as we can, but sometimes it just seems like there's a flurry of activity and then it can be quiet for a long time.
2: Let's talk about funding. What kind of funding will be needed? Where will that come from?
3: Well, you know, for me, of course, you can't do anything without money in, these, in this world. But for me, it's more important to have the people the people who care about it, the people who will have the expertise. We have partnerships, we'll continue that with the Nature Conservancy and the, um, the National Wildlife Refuge um, with um, the Nebraska um, Historical Department. We will continue these, these um, but we need younger people. We have some younger people who are interested. One of the things we wanna to try to do is train some younger people to be guides, to take people around and tell them about the stories of these places. And then um, trying to work with the Boys and Girls Club to develop kind of a junior ranger program to get kids to learn about edible plants and some medicinal plants and some of the words for the trees and that kind of thing. So, so money is great, but money doesn't solve your problems. It's kind of like um, you need the people who, who want to be involved. And that's always the critical thing. Money follows that. If you get money without people, what's the point?
2: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about whether you had any idea of what to expect as far as visitation, whether admission fees might support the operation. You know, White Cloud, if I'm uh, correct, is a stop along the Lewis and Clark National Historical Trail. So maybe you have a little bit of visitation there already. So is your goal for the park to pay for itself? Would you get funding from the National Park Service?
3: No, we, we wouldn't get any kind of funding from the feds on that. You know, usually there are, there's National Park Service might have special community grants or programs. Most of those things are are planning grants. They're not really in terms of brick and mortar developments. They're not really in terms of uh, sustained personnel. Um, most of the time it's like a, a, a year project to develop an idea or something like that I don't know that there's a lot of money for for the kind of things we do so we're going to have to we're going to have to like I said keep it simple and to the bone sometimes just because we need to be self sustaining we I'd love all the gadgets and wonderful things and maybe that'll come but we don't want to overextend ourselves um, without a firm grounding and making this to be able to be self-sustaining
2: any idea of what kind of visitation you could anticipate?
3: You know, our, we haven't really looked at the numbers. We do have, um, like, uh, motorcycle groups that go through. We have uh, antique cars that go through. We have two two times a year. The White Cloud has a pretty famous flea market that it's uh, active. We're gonna have to develop that kind of thing. Plus, our tribe is getting into agritourism and as part of regenerative agricultural work it's gonna be a lot of synergy between these things. We have ecotourism, heritage tourism and agritourism. Uh, We all have greenhouses, we have our hemp operation, we have uh, our chickens, range chickens. We have all kinds of things we're doing and it's gonna be organic kind of begins to develop. We are within market range of um, large cities. St. Joseph is the closest one about um, 30, 40 miles away But we also have Kansas City and Omaha, and I think it's only going to grow. There's a lot of interest there. I think I'm not as worried about people not coming as I am about we need to maintain the character of the place in the face of too much interest.
2: Well, there is a growing number of tribal national parks in this country. What are some of the best practices you've seen incorporated at other tribal national parks that you would like to adopt for Iowa?
3: Well, I think one thing that most tribal national parks, by whatever name they have, is it is very much about keeping the money in the community. It is about keeping jobs for people in the community. And then also sometimes there are places or times when it may not be available to outsiders. We might have ceremonies, we might have uh, sweats or vision quests or, or meetings or whatever. So those kind of things will have to plan for that. And then sometimes there may be locations that people won't be able to go to because something is going on that's of a sacred nature. So that's something that's gonna have to be, almost all the tribal parks that I know of have elements of that, either a place that's only permitted for tribal members, for example.
2: President Biden has just signed four executive actions to help advance racial equity for Americans that the White House says has been underserved and left behind. One action reaffirms the federal government's commitment to tribal sovereignty and consultation. The executive order says it will, quote, strengthen the nation-to-nation relationship between the federal government and American Indian and Alaska Native tribes, empowering self-determination and advancing racial justice for Native communities. Further, the White House says the order quote, reinvigorates the commitment of all federal agencies to engage in regular, robust, and meaningful consultation with tribal governments. What do you think of this executive action, and how do you think it will help your tribe and the development of your national park?
3: Well, nation-to-nation consultation is based upon treaties and the um, supreme law of the land and the special status that we have as domestic dependent nations and i am so glad that uh president biden recognizes that and states that as a strong part of the policy again we have had some bumpy rides over the last four years for us um, and the pipelines the um, struggles over reduction of tribal lands things like that i anticipate this is going to be better for us at least for a while And so in my job as TIPO consultations with agencies hasn't always been great anyway, but uh, it was really eroded this last term. And I hope we get back to that proper way of uh, consultation again, supported by what President Biden said, because really it's gonna come down to what's happening to the earth Indigenous people are the ones who have an idea of how to try to save all our necks, uh, what's coming. And it's really to everybody's benefit to consult with us as early and as often as possible.
2: Now, in summary, what work has to happen next in order to make the Tribal National Park open and a reality?
3: Well, I've been working on two things for this year. One is the general management plan, kind of using some of the plans that the other national parks have for some of the elements, but also based upon our conservation and historic preservation easements we agreed to. So those are the cornerstones for these general management plans. We, we have prairie restorations to do burns, things like that. Um, we have a uh, archeological investigation this spring on one of our agency sites. But my goal really over the next five, five years is to set up each year several signs that will interpret some of these places to get the plans in place, to get some personnel in place so that we're ready to go in 2025.
2: Any additional thoughts?
3: The main thing I would say is I think we all love the land in our own ways. And that land, without that land and the health of the land and the water, We don't have any future, any of us.
2: Lance, I want to thank you for your time today. And please keep us posted on how things go with the Tribal National Park. And we will definitely be looking forward to taking a visit.
3: Thank you.
1: That's our show for this week. If you have suggestions for other topics or individuals we should include in future podcasts, please let us know via email at news at nationalparkstraveler.org. Next week, we'll be speaking with Will Shafroff of the National Park Foundation and David McDonald at Friends of Acadia to learn more about the nonprofit side of the national parks. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck.